This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lisa Leong with you. Scott Fry is a chocolate maker. He spends his day finding new ways to discover delicious flavour combos. It's a job that many kids dream of, but Scott never would have imagined it. As a little boy, growing up paddling to school from the wild magnetic island off the coast of far north Queensland. Scott's always been drawn to interesting places, from working at Shark World as a teenager and donning harem pants for his job at the iconic Cats Tango establishment, all the way to the Amazon rainforest. That's where he fell in love with cacao and the local community that harvests it. Hi, Scott. Hi, Lisa. Scott, your family moved to Magnetic Island when you were nine years old. What are your first memories of arriving there? Well, I have this very vivid memory of walking down the jetty at Picnic Bay and we'd been living in Richmond, which is like in the middle of Western Queensland. It's like you kind of blink and miss it as you drive through the highway, a bit of a dust bowl. And then we get to Magnetic Island. I'm walking down the jetty surrounded by beautiful blue ocean. And I remember wearing these shorts and T-shirt that my mum had made me. And the shorts had like a little trim on it that was like, you know, those curtain, the old sort of 80s curtain trims. You know, and she used to cut my hair. So I sort of felt like a little bit like a fish out of water in a way because all the kids on the island were um, barefoot and kind of a little bit scruffy. But I remember thinking, wow, this is paradise because um, I've always loved the water. I remember um, my teenage years, it really felt like just a, a, a love affair with the ocean. And we used to, I still love spear fishing and we used to go out to the Great Barrier Reef once a month. We had a, a club and I just remember not being able to go to sleep the night before. I'd been so excited, you know, and you'd get out to the reef and I'd always be over the side of the boat into the water before they'd drop the anchor. You know what I mean? You're looking over the edge and such clear water and seeing the fish from the boat and the coral and it was just absolutely amazing. Now, you went to school on the mainland, though. So how did you get to school? Well, actually, I used to catch the ferry. But um, in my in my last year of school, I was part of the surf club and um, used to do a lot of ski paddling. And so I used to um, paddle my surf ski across in the morning and then I'd catch the ferry back in the afternoon and catch the ferry in the morning the next day and then paddle back in the afternoon. So I'd do you know, one leg a day sort of thing. Hang on, um, how long is that trip? It was, it was uh, about 12 kilometres. How long would that take? Well, if I had a good swell behind me, usually coming from the island across the mainland because the prevailing sort of swell was coming onto the mainland, I could actually beat the old ferry. So do it in about 40 minutes, you know, catching the waves across. So it was a lot of fun because quite hypnotic as you can imagine, because you're paddling and the paddle's kind of going and you're balancing on, on, on it and, you know, coming from the mainland across the island, you were going against the swell. So it would always take a lot longer and take a lot more energy. But I remember sometimes just getting into a complete trance and feeling like, you know, when you kind of, when you do sort of things and you, and you sort of 
pass through the wall, you kind of hit the wall, you pass through the wall and you get on the other side of the wall and, and you feel like you can just do it forever. You know what I mean? Like I could just keep on doing this forever. So I kind of, yeah, spent a lot of time just out in wild nature. And once you were old enough, where did you get your first job? I got my first job at uh, Shark World, which was in Nelly Bay. And Shark World's claim to fame was having the only tiger shark in captivity in the world. Um, one of my good friends was working there during the week, so it was his full-time job. And I was still at school, and so I managed to get the weekend shifts. And uh, they had a catamaran hire as well. And so, you know, I used to run the catamaran hire, and then I'd spend quite a bit of time cutting up fish and then the highlight of the day was when all the tourist buses came for the shark feeding. And then you'd sort of take all the tourists through and tell them about all the fish as you fed the fish and feed the sharks and try and get the sharks into a bit of a frenzy for the tourists. Sounds dangerous. Did you have much training? We did have to um, get inside some of the tanks to clean the glass on the inside. I remember the first time I had to get into the groper tank and it was a fairly big tank, but these there were two, three gropers in there, quite big fish. With you? Yeah. As you were cleaning the tank? Yeah. And the gropers must have sent, sensed my kind of anxiety because they started charging up and down the tank and I could feel kind of the pressure a little bit. And then I managed to settle down a bit and they settled down as well. Were you scared of the sharks? Yeah. Well, I never got into the tank with the sharks, but we had crocs and as well, and the crocs go into hibernation and the tourists would always try and egg me to feed the crocs because they wanted to see the crocs eat. And during winter, if you threw food into the croc compound and the crocs didn't eat it, then the boss would send you into the compound to get the food out. Oh. So. Um, Did they ever send you? I never went in. I never went in. <laughs> Good I, to be friends with the boss, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I resisted, you know, the, the calls to throw in food into the, into the, into the crocs. The gropers was enough for me. Yeah. What did you learn about the nature of sharks and animals like crocs? I'm not sure whether I learnt a huge amount from, from shark world, maybe a little bit, but, um, you know, I spent a lot of time um, free diving Free diving's without any apparatus. Yeah, it? yeah. I remember at school because it was, you know, it was a it was a spearfishing club, so we used to have competitions, you know, like the North Queensland Championships and and all of that. And I remember at school, um, sitting in class, kind of practicing holding my breath. <laughs> How long? But I remember stalking a fish once, and I had fifty foot of line from my spear gun to the to the float on the surface. And I remember kind of getting to the point where I couldn't go any deeper. And so, you know, I was 50 foot down. You would be negatively buoyant with weight and then you would get under the water and then you'd glide down so you wouldn't use any energy. You'd glide down on the fish. And so because you weren't using energy, you could actually conserve your oxygen and you could stay down for longer. I'm getting this real sense of you being very comfortable, nearly at one with the water. Mm. Was it only just water? So you're more water than land? Yeah, it was my, my mother always used to say to me, and, and I don't know whether she was trying to convince me of it, but you know, she always used to say to me, you could swim before you could walk. Just love the ocean, just love the ocean. Tell me about your mum. Did island life suit her? I think so. Mum was, um, she was a nurse. I was kind of, had a 
bit of a problematic birth and was a little bit sickly as a, as a child, bronchial asthma right. and just kind of different things. And and mum really got into, this is sort of the, you know, the early 70s. She really got into the whole sort of Anne Wigmore. Anne Wigmore was sort of an icon of the living foods movement in the right. 70s. And so she got into all that sort of stuff and then became a naturopath. So we had all kinds of weird and wonderful sort of food and health like experiments Scott. going on in the house. So one of the interesting ones was, um, and this is one of the ones that sort of quite a few of them scarred me, you know, for life. And um, this one definitely did. Um, she used to grow wheatgrass in front of the television to absorb all the radiation from the television. And we wouldn't juice you that wheatgrass. That. <laughs> no, that one would go out. And I've never owned a television Never, I'm never, as an adult, I've never owned a television. So, because yeah. you're a bit scared, it has an effect on you. And I also remember salt water cleansers. You know, there was a period where my sister and I, you know, on a Sunday, I don't know, once every couple of months, stay at home and drink warm glasses of salt water. Oh. And do a few kind of yoga poses and had cleaned out everything and there was just salt water coming out, which is a sort of a traditional kind of yogic cleanse. Apparently the yogis used to you know, spend the day on the beach and just drink the salt water and cleanse the I would have system. thought that would have put you off getting into salt water after that. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the sandwiches that she used think, yeah. to pack for you. Yeah, so mum, so when when we lived in Richmond, mum used to um she used to get this special bread all the way from Mount Isa. Used to come in on the train. What type of bread? It was dark with all seeds all through it, you know what I mean, kind of definitely not white bread. And we had a big veggie garden in the backyard and grew grew a lot of food and so you know, the sandwich didn't have any butter or anything on it and, you know, it was sort of had beetroot and, you know, grated carrot and, you know, all these different things on it. And she'd lovingly made it right. And one of my good friends, his parents owned one of the local pubs. And so he used to come to school with these beautiful toasted ham and cheese sandwiches, you know, and white bread. And so... um Anyway, somehow I ended up striking a deal with him and he'd bring extra sandwiches. And yeah, I'd hide mum's sandwiches, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and you think I'll hide them. And where? Under the port rack, you know, where you put your bag. And mum was working at a teacher's, <laughs> as a teacher's aide at the, at, at, the, at the primary school. And she discovered them. Imagine. Oh, no. Imagine that. How many would have been in there? I don't know. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Now your dad, what was he doing when you were growing up? My dad was um, very different from my mother. Um, he was a pharmacist and, um, and more or less lived at the pub when he wasn't at work. His claim to fame, he, was the, um, he created the toad races on Magnetic Island, the cane toad races. Um, what which, does that involve? Well, they used to happen at the pub. Um, on a Wednesday night and all the money raised went to the surf club. We used to um, get, I don't know, maybe six or seven cane toads. Each of them would have a different ribbon, different coloured ribbon on them, but one didn't have a ribbon uh -huh. and that was the skinny dipper from Rocky Bay because Rocky Bay was where you went skinny dipping. Right? Uh. And then dad would, you know, he'd be at the pub and he'd have a few beers and he'd kind of get pretty geared up and then he'd auction off all the toads to the tourists and the tourists would bid on them. And then um, we had this like little corral that we made 
it was a, a cement slab uh-huh. and then a line around the outside and you put the corral in the middle with the toad in each of the stalls and then you'd lift the corral up and then the toad, the first toad to get across the line out of the circle was the winner. Brilliant. And then the the person who had the winning toad, they had to kiss the toad before they could get the <laughs> prize money. So, and, and us kids would have to catch all the toads and then bring them back for the next race. Amazing. Yeah, what classic. an upbringing. Then you go to university and you decide to move to Brisbane. Mm. What did you study there? I did an arts degree. And yeah. you got a job there to support yourself through uni. Where mm. was that? At the Cat's Tango, the Cat's Tango restaurant, which um, Peter Hackworth was sort of kind of like a an icon of Brisbane. She was sort of I don't know, it's kind of, I think they used to call her the queen of the beatniks because she came out of like the 60s, you know what I mean? Sort of a black bob hair, really big personality, super fashionable and um, quite iconic. So, yeah, it was a theatre restaurant and we used to have belly dance would come through and there'd be a palm reader and it was a great menu, French chef, and there was a garden section that had all these beautiful plants. And, like, I was a country boy, right, and Brisbane was the big city, yeah, and these gorgeous hand-blown glasses on the table and all the, all the napkins and everything came from Harrods and it was quite a magical, magical place. So it was really fun to work there. And what did you wear? When we came into work, there was a big closet And so, you know, when you came into work, you'd get to choose, you know, what costume you were going to wear. And, um, yeah, there was lots of harem pants and different sorts of, you know, wear a turban or it was great because you could kind of get away with being really theatrical and people loved that. So it was a a really fun place to work. It was one of those formative experiences for sure. Where did you first travel to after university? When when I finished university with my girlfriend at the time, we hitchhiked up the coast. Um, used to do a bit of hitchhiking. Used to hitchhike back up to Townsville sometimes on the holidays from uni. And we got as far as Noosa. We set up a tent in the camping ground, which was right at the end of the Esplanade where the Noosa River comes into the beach. And we stayed there for about three months. We got jobs. And then we kind of worked our way up the coast. And then we eventually got on to different yachts and sailed across to the islands off the end of Papua New Guinea, the Louisiades and and Trobrians we kind of sailed through, which was a lot of fun. And then you spent time in an ashram outside of Mumbai. What was it like arriving there? What did it look like? The flights used to arrive into Mumbai in the middle of the night. And so this is 1994 and because I'm going to this particular place, everything's organised. This is before the internet, right? <laughs> I think it's even before The Lonely Planet. I think The Lonely Planet was just starting to sort of come out at this time. But anyway, I remember arriving at the airport and I was being picked up by this guy who it looked like a rishi. He had a top knot, he had a big long beard and um, he was dressed in a white kurta and he looked like a rishi. Scott, what's a rishi? A rishi is um, a sage, like an Indian sage, like a, a yogi. And so we're driving through all the back streets of Mumbai and they're full of people. I can remember thinking, wow, there must be so many people that they have to do shifts with the beds or something. I don't know, because like the streets are full of people in the middle of the night and it's quite a culture shock. 
And then, yeah, got, got to the ashram at like three o'clock in the morning and I was sitting outside waiting for someone to come and get me. And then it was just opening up. It was just getting going for the day. And I was sitting against a wall and the window beside me opened up and this light came out and all this frankincense and, and the sound of sort of bells and conches and, um, and drums came out because they were starting the morning arati. The morning arati starts at 3.15 in the morning. So it was, it was amazing. Um, it was absolutely incredible. It was like, um, it was like time traveling, really. It was like traveling into another age. Can you share um, what the daily life was like at the ashram? So the ashram was modeled on what's called a gurukula, which is like a traditional ancient school. So it was quite disciplined. Um, it was monastic. Um, so, and it was beautiful, beautiful gardens and beautiful like statues. And, you know, it was, it was a gorgeous facility and grounds and everything. And, you know, it was probably anywhere from four or 500 or up to sort of a couple of thousand people, depending on kind of what was happening there. There was a sort of a, a schedule that would happen every day. We'd start at 3.15 in the morning with the morning arity and not everyone would go, but I used to love to go. And then you'd sort of meditate from sort of four o'clock through till five o'clock and then people would go off and get chai and then from 5.30 to 7 you would chant uh, do swadhyaya which is chanted like a Sanskrit text. After that you'd, um, I used to go and do yoga, do some yoga, do yoga outside in the gardens and then um, go and have breakfast and then you'd do seva which was kind of like seva is Sanskrit for service. And so that was your work sort of thing, you know, what you did during the day. And then you'd have lunch and then often a little siesta after lunch, a little, a little nap, you know, because you got up quite early. Um, and then go back and do savour and then dinner. And then, um, and I used to actually, I used to, um, there was a reservoir where we used to get our water, water from. And I used to run out there and then go swimming in the reservoir. With the savour, you started working with the local Adivasi people mm. of the region. Mm. How were they making money? Well, yeah, the, the local Adivasi people were sort of very marginalised Indigenous community, very poor, um, and primarily rice farmers. It was really interesting watching the dynamic of the city, Mumbai, spread into the valley. And this valley sort of had thousands of years of sacred heritage. You know, the, the local mythology and everything said that the sister and the, you know, the, the Ramayana, Ram and Sita and all were there. And there were statues and that represented different places where different things happened and amazing rich heritage. And there were leopards and hot springs. It was really famous for these amazing hot spring called Agni Kund in the mi middle of the river. And during the winter, when it was cold, the river was dry. And so you could go and bathe in this spring in the, in the riverbed. And it was the hottest spring in Southeast Asia. You could literally boil rice where it came out of the, out of the ground. And so when beautiful. Mumbai was encroaching on that, what was happening? 
Yeah, it was a, this dynamic that happens all over the world where the price of rice was so low, it wasn't even worth them growing rice because of the fertilisers they had to buy. And so what would happen was the building mafia from Mumbai would come out and they would negotiate to acquire their topsoil. And so the farmers would get this cash injection. You know, they'd sell their topsoil where all the fertility is. And then the, the building mafia would bring in migrant labour and they would make bricks in situ and they'd make these bricks into a big, massive big brick kiln, big pile of bricks, and then they'd go and chop down some of the trees from the forest and use them to create a fire that would then fire the bricks. And as the bricks are firing, all this pollution comes out of the top. So literally, you know, you'd drive through the valley in the morning and you'd see all these, these big stacks of bricks with smoke coming off them. And it was literally like watching you know, the whole natural environment just go up in smoke, you know, and the pollution was incredible, like this, the smell of it and, you know, the air quality and, and obviously all the forest is being chopped down. So then once they've sold their topsoil, they can't grow rice anymore. There's no livelihood. So then they end up selling their land. And so then they sell their land and then, then that's how the industrialization process happens, right? And then so then the land's converted into factories and then the farmer then has to come back and work in the factory as a factory worker. And so that's that's kind of what happens all over the world. That sounds like a very bad spiral or cycle. So how did you change the model? Yeah, well, I, I guess that was, you know, because I realised it's happening all over the world, China, everywhere, everywhere where there's this kind of rural, urban migration. That's the dynamic that's happening. So um, I had this inspiration. I was, I was coming back from Mumbai one day in, in the bus and I was reading David Suzuki's book, Naked Ape to Super Species. And I just had this inspiration that had to create a brand in the marketplace, a premium organic brand in the marketplace. What's if, about trade-offs? If you've got a market, if you've got access to market for premium products and a demand, then you can come back and work with the farmers and say, you know, I'll pay you X if you grow these things in this way with this quality. And then you can kind of hopefully reverse the cycle and educate the people in the market that it's better to buy premium things that are conserving these indigenous cultures and conserving the biodiversity of the ecosystems. And So in that case, was it raising the price of rice? Yeah, well, it was working on trying to commercialise organic rice at a premium price. And then that's kind of been the journey that I've been on, I guess, ever since, is, is sort of this process of looking to see how, how to kind of reverse that, that process. Podcast. Broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Scott, 
after India, your travels take you to Mexico. What did you discover there? Well, actually, I ended up living in Mexico. And in Mexico, I worked with uh, several Indigenous cooperatives. One was a very large Mayan cooperative in Chiapas, which is on the border with Guatemala. That's where they say the Olmecs, who are the ancestors of the Mayans, first domesticated cacao and created big culture around cacao. The genetic material of cacao comes from the Amazon. That's where it originally comes from. So Incan traders brought the genetic material up to Mesoamerica, and then the Olmecs started to create culture around the cacao, and cacao was really the basis of their culture. It was the currency. It was used in all their sacred ceremonies. So it was very, very revered. And the legend or the mythology was that Quetzalcoatl, who's the feathered serpent god, it said that Quetzalcoatl bought cacao to the earth. And so when the Spanish came, that's why they called the plant Theobroma cacao, which means food of the gods. So I used to go and stay in Chiapas with this guy, Jose Caballero, who lived on a little cacahuatal. He was working on, 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 on trying to rescue the original heirloom variety of cacao. All the cacao was rotting on the trees because the price was so low and the government had introduced the high-yielding hybrids. And so he was trying to do the same thing, rescue this heirloom variety and demand a premium price for the market so then it makes it worthwhile, right? And so I just became absolutely fascinated. And then when I came back to Australia, I had a dream. And then I've just been on the hook ever since. What was the dream? Well, it was, it was kind of, it was just sort of this tableau, right, of Quetzalcoatl, Jose Caballero, and the cacao. And then for me, as with dreams, you know, I woke up and I felt like it was just like, I need to work with cacao. I need to kind of, you know, I've been, I don't know, <laughs> I'm still trying to work it out. <laughs> you arrive in Peru. Describe what it's like there. I was taken to Peru by this beautiful Andean, elderly Andean gentleman who um, worked for the United Nations for most of his life. He was a professor of agriculture. So he'd worked all over Africa. Um, he was in his sort of late 70s, early 80s. Short man from the from Huancayo in the Andes. And basically, as you go from the Andes down to the Amazon, so you drive from Lima. Lima's some of the driest desert in the world on the coast. It's the reverse of Australia, right? And then you go up to the top of the Andes, 4,000 metres above sea level, and you pass above the tree line. And then as you come down the other side, you start to see the crops growing above the tree line, right? So all the potatoes, and it's gorgeous, you know, and and the mountains are all, there's all these um, terraces across all the mountains, right? They're abandoned, yeah, as you're driving above the tree line. And you realise the Incan civilization must have been so massive and so many people, Right? Because there's all these terraces, everything's terraced, like it must have all been farmed, you know, pre-Hispanic. And then as you come down in altitude, you basically get every single microclimate as you come down to the Amazon, down into the Amazon basin. So they can grow anything. Um, it's one of the most biodiverse places on earth, right? So there's all these incredible crops and products. And so he took me down and introduced me and showed me around and introduced me to the Ashanika, who are the largest 
indigenous group of the Amazon in Peru. And then over the years, I started to develop a relationship with them. And then um, in partnership with the Round Forest Foundation, I was able to start working directly with them. What did they make of you when you were first introduced to them? Well, when, when I, I first, my first contact was, um, so the mayor's office in Satipo. So as usual, you know, you go and meet the mayor, right? Um, and so I went and met the mayor at the mayor's office. He introduced me to the mayor. And then in the office beside the mayor was the office of Ruth Buendia, who was the firebrand sort of leader of the Ashaninka people. And she's won like global awards for environmental activism. Amazing woman. Um, so I met her in 2011. So that was kind of my first contact. Um, but it wasn't till 2015 that I really started working directly with the Ashanika. And that was in partnership with um, the Rainforest Foundation. And a very curious link here. So the Rainforest Foundation from the UK was one of those organisations created by Sting to work with the Indigenous communities of the Amazon, you know, back in the 80s, right? And then when I was leaving the Cats Tango, when I sort of graduated from university, the gift that they gave me when I was leaving was a book written by Sting about the Amazon. Isn't that funny, huh? And I've still got that book with all the signatures of all the staff in it. And it's it's written by Sting on, you know, on, on the Amazon and all these people like the Ashanika. And, you know, then 20 years later... No longer, 25 years later, I end up meeting them down in the Amazon and kind of working with them. So you start working with the Indigenous community. Mm. Describe their work there, their daily life. They're quite remote. To access the villages, you have to travel about 100 kilometres by canoe upstream. So, And these are big canoes with big, powerful outboards on the back. And so it's quite an adventure. You know, they traditional, they live very traditional lifestyle, traditional dress, mainly live off the forest, but they have been obviously, you know, starting to interact with the broader economy and Rio Ene, where, which is the region where these, this community that I work with live is the biggest, one of the biggest cocaine producing areas in the world. And so these indigenous communities have been basically sandwiched between the narcos and the paramilitary, right? And it's all corrupt. And, and so the, the communities have been completely devastated. In 2015, when I first went up into the communities, they just released 45 Ashaninka people from a narco slave camp. And so um, the Rainforest Foundation had been working with them for many years to establish land rights, but they needed some kind of economic activity to sort of empower them, right? And so that's where we came in with the cacao. The cacao grows wild, so they kind of grow the cacao in a, in a sort of, and we've really encouraged them to focus on the heirloom varieties that grow in the shade in harmony with the forest. I hadn't learnt a lot about where our cocoa mm. comes from. Where mm. does chocolate come from? Mm. So how do they harvest cacao? That was really one of the really special experiences I had. Literally, the whole village went out together to harvest the cacao. 20, 30 people, you know, not everyone in the village, but the majority of the people, right? And so we'd go to someone's plot 
and then everyone would sort of go out and they'd cut off the mallorcas off the tree. The women had these beautiful traditionally woven baskets that would strap around their heads and so they'd cut off the mallorcas of cacao, the pods, and put them in the baskets and then How bring them... How high up? The They're pods? quite low. The, the cacao is a gorgeous tree. It grows in the understory and all the pods quite conveniently grow on the trunk and the, and the low branches. How many are we talking? Um, you know, you might get sort of 10, 15, 20 on a tree and, and they fruit over a season, you know what I mean? I'm sort of picturing coconut-like. Yeah, they're kind of gorgeous shape, beautiful shape, elongated shape, very sensual, different colours. And then so they bring them all back, pile them up in an area, and then everyone has a party, basically. How do they get the pods onto the ground? Do you... So just pour them out of the baskets. So they, well, they oh, chop them. They chop, chop them. them. They've got a special tool to chop them and then put them in the baskets, bring them back, collect them. And everyone sits around with machetes and chops to open the, the pods and then scoops out the beans. And the beans are covered in this absolutely delicious flesh. Imagine like a cross between custard apple and pineapple. Ooh. Absolutely delicious. So everyone's eating, <laughs> you know, the flesh and the beans and, and then collecting the beans. And How many beans would you get in a pod? Maybe 20 or 30. But Not the many. thing. Not that many, no. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, I mean, they're precious. They're precious. You know, when, when Cortes conquered Moctezuma, you know, the, the Aztec emperor, and he was looking for all the gold, right? Where's all the gold? And Moctezuma's vaults, what were they full of? Cacao beans. Because that was the currency. That was what was valuable. Um, so it's always been a very sacred, very, the thing that really struck me was the love and joy in the community as they're harvesting. And that for me was really significant because one of the sort of things in India around food was we always considered food sacred in the ashram. I did my, I worked in food services there, managing the food services in the ashram. And it was always this thing of what you think about and how you are around the food when you prepare the food affects the food and then affects the people that eat it, right? Because this whole thing is sacred. Yeah. For me, that's Really significant because, you know, there's all this love and joy that this community bring to this product as they harvest it. What did they use the beans for? Well, they would, you know, traditionally they would consume them. Like I said, they didn't build big culture out of it like the Mesoamericans did. The Mesoamericans developed very elaborate culture around it. You know, the the, the Ashanika again, sort of had a, a much lower key, you know, they didn't build the pyramids and they didn't create the cities and all that kind of stuff. You know, they lived in harmony with the forest. What were the competing demands here in terms of that trade-off with the cocoa beans and what you could do with a different model? Unfortunately, the world, cocoa or cacao, cocoa, cacao, is the worst legal supply chain on the planet, right? There's 25 million people in West Africa, in Ghana and the Ivory Coast that are working for one US dollar a day so that everyone can have their cheap chocolate, right? So it's most of the chocolate on the planet does not have joy and love in it. it. It's got a lot of suffering, a lot of suffering associated with the harvest of that product and the whole supply chain. Yeah, we're trying to shift that and to shift that, it's all about raising awareness with people. And, and you know, for me, you know, really it's about transparency and about people. When you put something in your mouth that's going to become part of your body, 
Ask the question, where does it come from? How is it produced? How would you describe the joy of chocolate? For me, it's spiritual. It's a sacred food. For me, I have a connection with the spirit of the plant, of the through eating, you know, and through that, the palate and that experience, understanding the mythology. And so it's a, it's a sacrament. Yeah, that's joy, right? That, you know, that's a, a fulfilling experience, yeah. When you were sharing that story of the joy of harvesting mm. and then the love put into the whole process, do you think that somewhere people are feeling that yeah. as they're eating? Yeah. The well, well the other, one of the other chemicals of emotion, the, the phytonutrients in cacao that they've discovered is called phenylethylamine and it's known as the love chemical. And it exists in cacao in, you know, because it's in our bodies and when people are in love or they're experiencing love, you know, scientists have found out that they have higher levels of phenylethylamine in their system and cacao has it in it. And so hence Valentine's and, you know, women in particular who are, you know, usually more connected with their hearts. So it's a very heart-centred food, you know, opens up your heart, makes you feel love. I knew it. Scott, you come back to Melbourne and the cacao beans arrive in bags at mm. your doorstep mm-hmm. and you go about making chocolate. Where do you start making that first batch? When I first started making chocolate, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know anything about chocolate, right? I got on the internet. And I'd been working with a community in Mexico that produced agave syrup. I wanted to make chocolate with agave syrup, right? But it's a liquid sweetener. So all chocolate's made with dry sweeteners. Yeah, innocence is bliss sometimes, right? And so I just started experimenting using cocoa powder and cocoa butter and agave syrup. And as so happens, I could make something that sort of resembled chocolate. So this is in your kitchen. In my kitchen and at you're home, just, just using a pot on the stove, <laughs> melting the butter, mixing it in. And it was very novel at the time. And um, What I year did, are we talking? 2006. And I didn't need any equipment because manufacturing chocolate, making chocolate properly, how we do it now is very capital intensive. It requires a lot of equipment to make it from the bean and, you know, do it. So anyway, I'd managed to hack it, so to speak, and make it, you know, in a novel way that didn't really use much equipment and that people liked, people liked it. What did that first batch actually taste like? Do you remember? It tasted different. (laughs) It tasted different, but it tasted... Oh, in what way? Well, it was kind of more fudgy more fudgy, had a sort of different, didn't have a snap. It was kind of different flavor, but people liked it enough so that I could then work on fine tuning it. Right. And then over the years, I became more sophisticated how I, how I, how I, because chocolate's like wine and whiskey, you know, it's, it's a deep hole. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people go really deep and, and, um, who were the first tasters? Yeah, as usual, you know, family and friends, family and friends. You mentioned wine. Uh, I used to be a wine lawyer and wine uh, makers talk about having seller palate where you yes. basically know your own creation yes. too well. Do you sometimes suffer from seller palate, Scott? Mm, yes, yes. But I'm, I'm also, I think the palate is so important because the palate doesn't lie. You know, a good sommelier can taste, blind taste something and tell you 
what kind of grapes were used, how it was processed, might even be able to tell you where they were from. It's the same with cacao and chocolate. If you've got really good quality chocolate, you can taste it and you can taste whether the beans have been roasted. You can taste whether it's been a high temperature roast, a low temperature roast. You can even, I mean, if you're really good, you can even start to say the, you know, where they've come from because it's the same. You know, the cacao tastes different, has the terroir right? It has the flavour of the land in it. Can you identify chocolate with a blind tasting? I'm not there. I'm not there because I'm biased. And we don't, we don't have a culture of it here in Melbourne. This is what my, my great dream and vision would be. The culture that we have of coffee in Melbourne, I would love to see a cacao culture. I just had these visions city. of you doing this grand chocolate tasting and kind of spitting into the buckets yeah, <laughs> rather yeah, than yeah. swallowing the chocolate. It's good. You get, you get a little bit high from it, right? It's kind of you get buzzed for sure. Do you ever get sick of tasting chocolate? I actually, I actually have eaten too much chocolate. I had to go off chocolate, yeah, because too much of a good thing, right? How long did you go off it for? Two months, but I'm back on it again now. But yeah, you can because it's a potent, it's very potent. And like all these potent things, I believe, you know, you need to interact with them with a lot of respect because um, they're potent and um, yeah, yeah, they're good, but too much of it can also. Is there a particular flavour combination that you're particularly proud of? We've actually just developed some new some new ones, which are, which I'm really excited about because we've got this gorgeous 69% base of cacao, and we're using cane sugar for the first time because we're starting to work with regenerative cane sugar farmers in Queensland. And the flavour of the cacao really comes through, and the team that have worked on the different flavours have added there's one that's an Australian bush foods one, and it uses um, lemongrass, Davidson plum, and gubbinge, which is the Kimberley version of the kakadu plum. And there's this gorgeous journey. Like when, I, when you eat really good chocolate, it's a meditation. You close your eyes, you put it in your mouth, you maybe crack it with your teeth, and then you let it melt across the palate. And as it melts across the palate... The fla- it's a flavour journey. So it starts with a certain flavour. So usually you get the flavour that you've added to it. So you get the lemongrass up front. And then as the, as the, stuff, as the chocolate melts on your palate, the flavours of the cacao come out. And so that lemongrass merges beautifully into the flavours of the cacao, which are floral because it's, a, it's an aromatic, you know, fine variety of cacao. So it's a whole journey, the flavour. And was there ever a flavoured journey that surprised you? So putting things together. I that... think that le- the lemongrass one really surprised me because I'm, I'm a, I love lemon myrtle oil. I love like, like citrus oils on my skin, you know, very refreshing and it's kind of invigorating. And so lemongrass is kind of this citrusy, very refreshing, surprising flavour. Can you share a failed recipe with us? A failed recipe, yes. We worked with carob and chocolate once and um, we, we were using raw carob and I think we might have had a bit of coconut in there as well. The, the bar would go rancid after a certain amount of time. So that was... The it was, end of the carob story. Well, it was like a sleeper, you know what I mean? You'd make it, tasted great, and then you'd package it and put it out there and three months later it'll be... You know what I mean? It was like one of those sleeper ones that... Did you actually put it on the market? I think we did, yeah. And then quickly took it off the market. Exactly. Oh, yes, wow. Yes, yes, yes. Scott, think you back to that little boy trotting through the bush, 
surf skiing to school. Does it make sense where you've ended up? I think so. I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out, right? But I think the thing that, at least for me personally, I think it's true for all of us, right, is making sense of your life, the sense-making process. And I think, you know, really grateful for, you know, the, the art of storytelling and the facilitation of storytelling because I think it facilitates the sense-making process. And I think that process of making sense of our own lives and being able to tell our own story is so empowering. What have you discovered telling your story? The power of storytelling. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Scott. Thank you, Lisa. It's been an absolute pleasure. My guest on Conversations has been Scott Fry, who founded Loving Earth. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, that she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. A new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.